1: From the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, California has ordered that all public events with 250 people or more be canceled or postponed. What's next for producers of live theater? And David Chang, the chef from the series Ugly Delicious, challenges your perceptions of food and a lot more.
0: Everybody wants to eat something delicious. No one wants to eat bad food, but the meaning behind it and the value behind it, uh, and the cultural truth behind it, tend to not always be correct. And and it's the old saying of like you know beauty's the eye of the beholder. It's it's the same with food.
1: That's today on the frame. We'll be right back the coronavirus effect has spread into every part of our culture. In New York, all shows on Broadway have been canceled into April, and concert giants Live Nation and AEG have suspended all tours. Here in California, in an attempt to slow the spread of the virus, state officials today called for the cancellation or postponement of public gatherings with more than 250 people through at least the end of March. The touring production of Hamilton at the Pantages is on hold, and the music center in downtown L.A. has shut down, as have most large venues throughout the region. Danny Feldman is the producing artistic director of one of those theaters, the Pasadena Playhouse. Danny, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. So the state has called for gatherings of more than 250 people to be canceled or postponed, for venues that have current shows up or might have shows coming up, what are the factors that might weigh in on the decision? The
2: theaters here in Los Angeles, particularly the theaters and performing arts centers, we've actually been in contact for several weeks now, um, more contact than I think we've ever had or I've ever had with our colleagues um, discussing that exact question. What what are the criteria for us making a change we don't want to make, which is which is cancelling performances on our stages. And we've really all been guided together by looking to the government, looking to the county officials, Barbara Ferrer at the health department, to give us guidance on when public gathering will be limited.
1: The Playhouse happens to be dark until late May. But when you have the perspective of not having to make an immediate decision and talk to your theater colleagues about what they're facing... What kind of perspective does that give you in terms of how you go about making this decision?
2: Yeah, while, while we don't have a main stage production, we actually have about 15 different events uh, between now and, and May when our next season show comes in. So we were looking at it as well of all those individual events as well as community events. But um, it's not just about ticket sales and that side of it and serving our communities. But we have a lot of people, our artists, our crew, just the L.A. theater community who make a living when we have shows and who don't make a living when we don't have shows. Um, So these are very challenging, complex decisions. And we really were relying on the government issuing of a recommendation. So I think you'll see a lot of motion now that that has happened.
1: So. What you're touching on is a particular problem, because if you're not getting the income from ticket sales, you don't have the money to pay staff and actors, and yet those actors and staff don't have income. So what happens? Are people just left in the lurch? How can any arts organization go about paying people who are suddenly unemployed?
2: That's that's the question, uh, particularly nonprofit organizations, right? Um, typically, nonprofits do not have reserves like many businesses um, to weather a storm of a very significant loss of income. Um, at this point, the governor's uh, recommendation is through the end of March we don't have guidance beyond that we are planning for beyond that personally i've been through something not to this scale but in new york i was running an off-broadway theater at the time of the hurricane that that struck new york and we were down for quite some time um and lessons learned from that about circling our wagons reaching out to our communities and to our supporters and and asking them to step up in a way and i i see just sort of looking around the corner at what's to come I think that will be 100 percent necessary in this case for our Los Angeles cultural institutions.
1: So there is the moral thing about what you can and cannot do. And then there's the legal question of what you can and are maybe obligated to do. Have you looked at all about whether or not you're contractually obligated to pay artists for shows that might be coming up or might be canceled?
2: Yeah, I mean, every—I won't speak on on other theaters, but most of the professional theaters, you know, have as little as two weeks' notice of of saying we're canceling a show. If you think about a, a producer putting up a closing notice because the show's not selling tickets, the business is designed to be flexible in that way, um, with crew calls and all of that. So there are a couple weeks that that ha- are provided for flexibility, but nothing longer than that.
1: We're talking with Danny Feldman, the producing artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse. Your next show on your main stage is a one-woman show about Ann Richards, and it's scheduled to open in late May. Governor Gavin Newsom said this morning that the closure recommendations will likely extend beyond the end of this month. So how long can you wait before you make a decision on the fate of that show?
2: You know, we're assessing that right now. We're assessing we we've slowed down our set build and those kind of activities for that specific show, we have a bit of time and we want to just see how long this will go. We did anticipate this order coming in some form. Um, and we, internally, we all looked at this as something that could be here for one to three months or so. But as you know, this is a fast moving situation. 24 hours ago, I felt differently about things than I do now. And I think it's speeding up. And we're really starting to understand what the impact is going to have in the L.A. art scene and in the community and particularly to to the theater makers or the performing artists here in the community that make their living this way. We're very concerned.
1: Hypothetically, if a theater had, say, a thousand seat venue, does it make any sense to only sell 200 seats to that show and get everybody spaced out? Or does that not even really pass the logical smell test?
2: You know, I, I don't know if that's the experience uh, patrons want, particularly in this moment, or to be in the theater. Um, There's some other theaters talking about um, recording performances and, and transmitting it via the internet for ticket buyers. Um, and we're certainly looking at all of those different options of if this is an extended period, how our performing arts community can still engage with our constituents in this in this temporary way. Um, but I, I, you know, we haven't gotten there yet in terms of conversations with unions and, and all of that. Right now, we're just really focused on the immediate and, and, and how we're getting through this period in the next couple of weeks.
1: Danny Feldman is the producing artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse. Danny, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, John. Coming up on The Frame, the series Ugly Delicious follows Chef David Chang, and like a lot of people who run restaurants, these are scary times for him. If you're a foodie and you're looking for something a little different than your average culinary competition on TV, the Netflix documentary series Ugly Delicious might be perfect for you. Hosted by award-winning chef David Chang, Ugly Delicious uses foods to open up a conversation. And the end result breaks down cultural barriers as it shines a light on the human experiences that unite us all. I spoke with David Chang and his collaborator, Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville, about making the second season of Ugly Delicious. But before we talked about the series, we started with the pressing news of the day, how the coronavirus is impacting the food service industry. Chang himself owns more than a dozen restaurants around the world.
0: Man, I wish I could give you a better answer other than I'm still trying to figure it all out myself. Um... It's something that we have been preparing for for quite some time because I'm a paranoid person in general. But uh, I think this is obviously going to change the landscape of not just restaurants, but retail and small business in general. So I- I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what happens if and when this all ends. And that's 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 very hard to picture. And uh, I don't really have an answer other than Trying to make sure that everyone washes their hands and if you're sick you stay home or if you're not feeling well stay home and and we're figuring out what we can do but I think operating a restaurant right now is 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 probably secondary to the safety and health of every one of our employees and guests.
1: Have you noticed a downturn in the number of people who have been dining
0: in your restaurants. I think across the board, if you talk to anyone, I would say the answer is yes. And particularly my friends that operate restaurants in Italy, China, and Japan, and Hong Kong. And I've been getting a lot of potential data patterns as to what might happen here. It's it's not, that outlook is not looking great right now.
1: And Morgan, what about you? Because so much of your work is out on the field, meeting people, interviewing people, being in crowds. How is it changing your Production schedule, your outlook on the kinds of stories that you can and are able to tell. We've already had to cancel a couple of shoot
3: trips. We had a, a shoot trip to South Korea this week, actually, that we canceled about a month ago. Um, and I think all international travels off for the time being. But even domestic travel, a lot of it is a little sketchy at the moment. Um, so that part of it, I think, is difficult. Um, I think the post-production part, which for what I do in nonfiction is a big a big piece, um, is. I, th- I think we're going to be okay doing that. So basically, if we can kind of hunker and edit, and kind of wait until some of this subsides, then then I think it maybe won't be too bad of a of a disruption. But uh, but that's kind of a best case scenario.
1: And have you guys even had early conversations about another season of Ugly Delicious? Because obviously you're out and about when you're making that series.
3: I mean, I think we've been talking about it <laughs> since the last day of shooting of last season. You know, I think we all love making the show. Um, it's just finding, you know, the
1: right, the right time and place and, and, um, and the opportunity. I want to ask you about the first time you met and the first conversations about doing this show.
0: We met uh, strangely enough on working on a, another series that never happened. It was sort of a pilot. And it was uh, with Coach K from Duke. And I spent a day with Coach K, and I think it was like, was it, did we shoot two days or one day? No, just one day. One day. And obviously uh, a big fan of Morgan's work, and um, uh, that's how we met. And and whatever happened that day in terms of shooting, I think Morgan felt uh, maybe it was a good idea to see if there was something else to do down the road.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I came away from that day feeling like, oh, my God, this guy needs a TV show. <laughs> like Dave was so not just articulate and smart, but vulnerable in a way that I really appreciated, you know, talking about his own kind of neuroses and things that I thought was really just an open book, which is kind of a great a great thing um, for a subject. But then when I got to hang out with him and some of his uh, food writer friends and chef friends and hear them talk, and realize that what they do is argue about food and argue about everything, how it relates to food. And I felt like, oh, these are the conversations I've never heard. You know, these are the conversations we don't get in most food programs, which which tend to t- kind of tell you, you know, the, the best place or the proper way or the whatever. And I, I thought it was really interesting to have arguments about culture through food and really... In my mind, that's kind of what Ugly Delicious is. It's it's a cultural debate show masquerading as a food show.
1: But those debates and arguments aren't necessarily mean-spirited. It seems like so much of what we see on television as it relates to chefs are mean. It's, you know, Hell's Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares, Worst Cooks in America... Or it's maybe too fussy, like Chef's Table, where you have to do things that no regular chef can do.
0: Well, I think if I behaved in a manner of Hell's Kitchen or those dramatically bad real TV series or even Chef's Table, which is, again, as you say, like very glossy, I don't know if Morgan would work with me. <laughs> I think it's about telling a, our version of, uh, of a story that's honest as possible.
3: Yeah, I mean it was something about the messiness of what Dave was doing and there was there was kind of an aesthetic to these debates that was just messy. It wasn't trying to make everything tidy both in terms of food and in terms of argument. You know that it was it was saying it's okay to ask questions, it's okay to disagree. Um we're all trying to figure it out. And I thought that was a really interesting approach both in terms of the filmmaking and in terms of the story.
1: Well, it strikes me that the show becomes, through that, less a show about being in the kitchen and more a show about being in the world, that food is the backdrop, but it doesn't feel as essential to the story, that it's really about people who happen to do this and that's what they share in common. Do you think that's a little bit of how this season has evolved?
0: And I think absolutely. I think Dave Hagerdorn, the award-winning food critic, food writer... And the steaks episode basically said it. And and it's a sort of a state of mind that I didn't quite grasp until doing this sort of episode. And, you know, if you just go out to a restaurant to eat, that's just, that has no meaning. The whole idea of eating to me, which was a central, I think, pattern theme running through all the four episodes was community.
1: A lot of this show is about your kind of experiencing new ways to cook and new approaches to food do you think of yourself as kind of the ambassador for the audience, not only in new ways of seeing food but also in new ways of seeing other cultures
0: um I don't know if I'm an ambassador for the audience I, I try to go in just as me, but I think where there might be connection to the audience and why sometimes the audience may be like allergic to me is because I'm just like going on, going into situations like a dummy and, you know um trying to have an open mind and to have my opinions be proven wrong. So I'm just always open to changing things. It's the whole idea of what strongly held beliefs loosely held or something like that. But, um, I don't know, Morgan, Morgan can say a little bit more about that. Like he, he loves putting me in situations where I don't know anything.
3: I love to see Dave get schooled. You know, it's, it's great because Dave both has strong opinions, but he's really willing to have those challenged. And I think as often as we can put him in situations where that happens, the better. Uh, I mean, the, the episode on Indian food was a perfect example because Dave basically said, this is really important and I know nothing. So it was a great kind of adventure to send him on um, because he, he learned everything. I mean, his, his ignorance in that way was an, was an asset.
1: I want to ask you, Dave, about this idea of ugly delicious. It describes a way of cooking that may not be pretty, but it tastes good. I would say it's kind of really well-made comfort food, home cooking. And there seems to be such a kind of split right now in high-end dining. Uh, over the weekend, I was up in Berkeley. I had dinner at Chez Panisse, where the menu is not cheap, but it's really simple. Beautiful ingredients prepared perfectly. And yet at the other end, we have you know people who are cooking you know confit of unicorn with an amuse-bouche of dragon tears how would you place your food between those two extremes? Because it seems to occupy a very special place for you.
0: I mean, the reality is I love both sides of that equation. And, and uh, I view this as just one giant spectrum with with uh, very complex tasting menus and things that can be as pure as what Alice makes at Chez Panisse. And I th- I think to me, the weird balance is you try to embrace both simultaneously and you know, the whole idea of ugly delicious was, um, you know, food, everybody wants to eat something delicious, no one wants to eat bad food, but um, the meaning behind it, and the value behind it, uh, and the culture of truth behind it, tend to not always be correct. And and it's the old what the the, the saying of like, you know, beauty is the eye of the beholder. It's, it's the same with food. And what is like, kimchi is a perfect example. Like I grew up eating kimchi. And Roundly made fun of growing up for eating kimchi, and now everybody wants to eat kimchi. So it's it's just funny how that all works. So it's really just trying to tell stories that you know we all want to eat tasty things. We actually all sort of eat the same thing. Uh, the only thing that sort of gets in our way are like cultural ignorance. <laughs>
1: Coming up on The Frame, more of my conversation with the creators of Ugly Delicious, David Chang and Morgan Neville. We continue now with my conversation with David Chang and Morgan Neville. They're the creators of the Netflix documentary series, Ugly Delicious. For this culinary show, food is just a springboard for a deeper discussion about race, class, gender, and more. So I asked Neville how Ugly Delicious connects something as simple as a plate of food to meaningful debate.
3: We talk about the conversations first. You know, what are the things we want to explore? And then what's a food that takes us there? And I think underneath every episode is an idea that we don't necessarily ever articulate that we want to investigate. It could be immigration or authenticity or tradition, but it's then through the food that we can kind of tell that story. We can Trojan horse it in. And I kind of love that. I mean, I think it's what's so great about food is that it's, it's something we all have a relationship to. We all eat, we all identify to some extent by what we eat and how we eat and how other people eat. So I feel like it's the most common part of culture. So what better way to tell stories to help understand people and understand ourselves than through food. So I've, i I think it's been amazing to work on the show because yes, it's about food, but it's about whatever we want to talk about too.
1: It's impossible to watch your series and not think of Anthony Bourdain and his passing. In fact, there's a moment where you talk about where you were, David, on the day he died. I'd like to ask you as a chef and Morgan as a filmmaker about the influence that Anthony Bourdain had on you as storytellers.
0: The first time I ever did real any kinds of uh, television was because of Anthony, and who had uh, in, in many ways been an older brother mentor to me and uh, really taught me a lot. And, um, I think it was just be yourself and be a good person. I mean, he had the no ass rule. So, um, you know, I just, I just never thought that I'd have those opportunities with Tony. And I think that's what really taught me is like, just be a good person, try to be honest and, and, and promote the stories that aren't being told. Um, and I actually, I think Morgan, because Morgan's working on on the the Bourdain doc, he might have a different insight altogether.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting because I am working on a feature doc right now about about Anthony Bourdain, which is interesting because you know I was always a fan of his, in the way a lot of people were. You know, when I caught him on TV, I enjoyed it, and I'd read you know Kitchen Confidential, um, but it wasn't until after doing. Ugly, delicious. That I really started working on this film and doing a deep dive into everything he wrote and every show he did, and really getting to the very bottom of it, and realizing how much of this ground he seeded um, for us to be able to do what we do, you know. And and really, he began this type of program and did it in such an incredible way. And I think the thing, you know, echoing what Dave was talking about, the thing that he had that worked so well was an incredibly authentic ability to be himself on camera. And when I would talk to people who knew him, everybody would say the Tony you saw on camera was him. And I think a lot of that's true of Dave too, that Dave is the guy you see on TV. And I think that's something you and Tony shared and maybe recognizing each other, which is you were authentically yourselves and didn't really care about what other people
1: thought. Dave, well before there was a pandemic, people were worried about other cultures and about what it meant to be an immigrant and whether or not it was a good idea to build walls. And so much of the show, and I think so much of your cooking, is about how food can cross borders. And I'm wondering, what kind of role do you see cooking and sharing tables and communal dining in that broader conversation about how much we share as opposed to how different we are?
0: Well, everything you just mentioned, I think we're just at the very beginning stages of it. I mean, talk about the pandemic. <clears throat> you have congressional leaders still calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. So, you know, there there's a stigma attached to many cultures not that that are immigrant or foreign to America. And I think that you see that best still in food and how other cultures, food are perceived or or, op- or or how open people are to it. So um, we're really just scratching the surface of this. And, and maybe it doesn't ever get that acceptance. But I think for the first time in a long time, there's a platform to have these conversations, whether it's talking about the fact that Indian food isn't just curry, and that's a misnomer, or, you know, the idea that vertical spit cooking and the food from the middle east which is still i don't even know what to actually call it because it's just not the right phrase and i'm still working on that like there's stories that haven't been told that are now being told and listen i i'm a korean american and i never saw this as a kid growing up you know i saw martin yan on pbs and now maybe you know the the, the the generation of younger kids watching this show, they're going to be the ones that can actually push this forward in ways that we can't.
1: And Morgan, when you're editing these episodes, how hard is it not to have stacks and stacks of food in front of you? Or do you have a no food in the editing bay rule so you don't have to worry about it? The problem is when I'm watching edits, maybe at night,
3: I get really hungry. <laughs> so we try and work on it just before lunch, just for dinner. But but don't watch episodes late at night.
1: David Chang and Morgan Neville are the creators of Ugly Delicious. The second season of the series is on Netflix now. And that'll do it for today. But just a note before we go. This is an important time for all of us to be well-informed. KPCC and NPR are committed to bringing you reliable information about the coronavirus and breaking news. And that's why we have paused our membership drive But we can't exactly pause our vital need for funding and support from people like you, our listeners. So while we aren't interrupting programming with our pledge drive today, we still need your support. So today your gift will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous gift from Gordon and Donna Crawford. Thanks for listening and supporting. I'm John Horn. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center.